Hello, dearest patrons. You're about to hear the rest of George's interview with Joshua and Elena, followed by the after party. Catch you on the other side. To to kind of um, to get more more practical, and I did I did kind of hint at this or ask this a little bit um, earlier, but just to kind of put put a finer point on it. What are you hoping to achieve? With, with the collection? I mean, talked a little bit about the abolition of wage labour, and I would imagine that there are probably some intermediate steps between <laughs> this collection and, and that outcome. But um, what, what would, uh, how do they frame What would success look like for the two of you in, uh, in, in editing and putting out this collection? Well, I would hope at least, I mean, I think realistically a collection like this is probably going to largely be read by um, uh, academically inclined people but, not know, that there's would, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that we should, no, no, we should it's, it's say to, to our to our yeah. listeners um but um uh, what i would say is i would hope that you know some of these academically inclined people who come into contact with this collection they see that there is um a, a fundamental oppositional critique that is is beyond what maybe they are used to hearing about in in the in the current culture the current university or the the current cultural environment, and that it is actually possible to do something with your life other than just being a, a conformist cadre of the system. You know, I would hope people read this kind of critical thought, and it inspires them to go out there and do precisely what makes Marxism relevant, which is essentially, especially at a moment like this, when the, the workers' movement is in a terrible state, you know, go out there and organize your coworkers and, you know, fight the capitalists. As basic as that is, 99% of today's intellectual Marxists is a totally foreign concept. But, but I guess my, my question is like, what isn't that isn't that a risk? Like, isn't it isn't it? I guess the, the conformist. I, I I don't want to put this in in some kind of wanky de- devil's advocate way, but like, if given the way things are at the moment, isn't it better to be one of the conformists? Isn't that easier? Isn't it, isn't it going to kind of uh, make your make your career and your life go go more straightforwardly. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. Okay. I mean, this is what I'm calling for people to do: is wreck your life and wreck your <laughs> because there are things that are much more important. Like, if we want to yeah. survive as a civilization, if we even want to survive as a species, we have to confront these difficult issues head on, and we have to enjoy doing that. You know, it's not a sacrifice. It's expressing and you know manifesting yourself as a as a real person, you know, like what we used to say, sort of like at the beginning of bourgeois enlightenment, what used to be called like, you know, a renaissance. And that's kind of what I'm at least hoping that, you know, some of our readers might be slightly inspired to do. Mm. No, I like that idea before, before the renaissance, you need to wreck your life so you can be, uh, be reborn, have a, have a new and uh, more fulfilling, if more complicated one. Um, Elena, I don't know if, yeah. if you if you have anything to add to the uh, yeah. these these I, uh, grand hopes, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, there are grand hopes. Um, I'm delighted by by Joshua's ambition. <laughs> My ambitions are not uh, so lofty. I have I have very very uh, low low ambitions. Uh, I just I just hope that this collection will make people write less terrible theory on Marx. That would be that would be uh, fantastic. I, I I really don't want to 
continue doing what I have been doing for the last 10 years or so, read terrible, terrible books on Marx, like from William Claire Roberts or Asad Haider or Jason Moore or what's his name, Joshua Clover. This terrible Marxism. And I, I, and I hope that this collection will help well, obviously this collection and my other brilliant uh, publications, <laughs> but, but this collection especially will, will, will be read by, by a few of those. And, and, you know, because I think that, um, you know, if you're a young scholar these days and you, you have read all of these, these people that I've just mentioned, and then you come across our collection and, and this will definitely uh, present a counterpoint to those. And, and this will make these people reflect. And I'm just happy if people stop contradicting themselves all the time or misrepresenting uh, Marx's thought all the time or just, just uh, conflate um, categories in Mar you know, it, it just in theory that, that, that don't belong, that, that are not supposed to be conflated like, like, like class, uh, race and gender and whatnot. So um, that would be already something that I would like to, 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 to achieve with this, with this volume, uh, better theory already, because wasn't it Lenin um, who said um, after the 1905, uh, revolution. We need patience and theory, and I like that. You know, I'm I, I'm already content <laughs> with that ambition. But it, it it does sound like the collection is driven by almost impatience in theory to the extent of wanting less uh, less bad Marxism that you would yes, have to read exactly. in your professional life. So yes, yeah, it's, it's dialectical. Um, any anyhow. So yeah. So just just to to kind of. Um, wrap things up so Eleni you already mentioned um another uh, project you've got coming up but yeah in terms of both both of the two of you what's what's coming next what's what what are the next um next projects on on the horizon Joshua you want to um, say something? well I'm currently focused on this project this um a web journal called um, a counterattack journal you can find it at um, counterattackjournal.org and essentially it ties into what I was just talking about, you know, my frustration with uh, the lack of um, uh, specifically political Marxist theory and um, a Marxist strategic thought. And so um, essentially what we focus on is have, having essays about, um, uh, you know, political theory and political strategy like state theory, um, you know, essays about um, current workers movements or current even, you know, like electoral or political party movements. And we try to combine that with translations of um, uh, classic work. Like in the first issue, we had an extensive translation of some archival documents of the, of the German Communist Party on its um, military policy, which is, of course, very important politically, but uh, relatively understudied. And in um, uh, this next issue, we're hoping to have also some, um, uh, you know, new translations of uh, discussion papers from the uh, Russian left opposition. Um, and so that's 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 more or less what I'm focused on. I want to revive that um, a tradition of specifically political and specifically strategic um, uh, Marxist thought. Yeah, and just uh, for, for listeners, I'm, I will will link to, to to the journal. But one of the um, <clears throat> one of the articles in there is uh, called "Blurred Lines," and I won't say what it's about. But that's just to to hopefully catch your attention and think, oh, what what could uh, what could 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 flow on from that? Um, but Elena, what what about you? 
yeah, I have a I have a new collection uh, coming up. Uh, we're just working on it, Jeff um, Schollenberger and myself. We are the editors of a new collection um, called, uh, so that's a working title, The Tyranny of Fear, COVID-19, Emergency Capitalism in the Left. We have some brilliant contributors to this one as well. We have the likes of, we have uh, Alex Gutentag, we have Thomas Fazi and Toby Green. We have a guy called George Hoare. And um, so that's going to be a pretty good collection. I'm looking forward to that. Um, we are at the negotiation stage, so not yet done, but that's going to be a definite um, recollection and definite, you know, um, um, <laughs> coming to grips with, with the terrible um, impact that the COVID policies had on the destruction of, uh, of, of the left and, and of uh, progressive um thinking yeah well i mean that was actually going to be the last question that i was going to ask but I, but particularly on on covid i guess one question that i really ought to to have asked um so not uh this is completely my my failing is do, do you think the this is going to sound like a really leading question um but do you think that the the response to covid on on the left on behalf of the left you know this collection is marxist critiques of the left do you think the response to COVID on behalf of the left kind of um, supports the main arguments and some of the main sort of theses of of the essays in in this collection in the in the conformist rebellion. Um, I would say I think it, it completely supports it and more or less confirms it. And I would say actually we're seeing like a, a deepening confirmation because what what we saw first with the response to COVID and then now with the sort of um, you know declaration of a holy crusade against Russia by the the dominant Western fraction of global capital. Yeah. What we are seeing is that these left liberals are actually in the vanguard of providing an ideological justification for the most anti-working class policies yes. imagined. And yes. actually demanding that they be harsher and more destructive. And it's, it's exactly. actually quite impressive. Mm -hmm. I completely agree, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to write. So th this it's interesting just to add uh, or to 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 round this up. When uh, it was two years ago, exactly in April 2020, that um, that we contacted the authors and that you know the final structure of this this collection uh, actually became um, became palpable. And during that time, I thought, okay, we have to we have to integrate somewhat the response, the left the left's response to, to COVID-19. And I'm glad that we didn't do it at that stage because you could see actually in the last year, not so much in 2020, but in the last year, how much more regressive, you know, the, the progressive fractions of society have become in their response to COVID, you know, how anti-working class they have become. And that wasn't clear at the point when we started this collection. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that I'm doing yeah. a separate a collection on, on, you know, like in hindsight of, of what happened, you know, how the left has, has been forcing these anti-working class politics, you know, through the COVID panic. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, like I said, I think it was a bit of a leading question. Um, listeners may or may not be able to guess what <clears throat> what I think about that or, or infer from uh, me being a contributor to the new <laughs> volume uh, equally what, what I might think. Um, but no, thanks. Thanks so much, um, Eleanor and Joshua. And listeners should definitely uh, check check this volume out, which is which is in fact out now. Thank you. Thank you.
Hello, and we're back. It's Alex, George, and Phil. Uh, I really enjoyed that interview. I thought it was quite interesting. Some interesting tensions raised there. Um, George, why don't you uh, tell us what you thought? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess the, the the first question to throw it, throw it back to to you guys before moving on to some of the themes I wanted to draw out was yeah, any 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 reflections on on the discussion? Thank you, Alex, for saying that you you found it interesting and enjoyable and not sounding too surprised. I, I didn't uh, say enjoyable. To... I said I said interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, not sounding too surprised then when when you uh, referred to an interview that I'd done um, in those terms. But yeah, any general reflections or anything you'd want to pick out? Yeah, I have to it? say I was quite impressed that Joshua didn't sound like um, Ashton Kutchner. No, not Ashton Kutchner. Ashton Ash. What's his face? Butcher, um, the actor. No, <laughs> I'm totally confused here. The, 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 Ast- part, the one Aston part of the Martin. Trump clan. Yeah, the Trump <laughs> clan guy. What's his name? It's Kushner, isn't it? Yeah, Jared Kushner. Jared yeah. Kushner. Yeah, that's it. So like when I, every American who isn't like a red, you know, doesn't have like a redneck hillbilly accent always sounds to me in my, at least what I hear is um, Jared Kushner. So I was happy to hear that Joshua, um, who I must confess I'm an admirer of his social media presence online. I was happy to hear that he didn't sound like a dweeby, you know, kind of Jared Kushner. Um, I'm sure he'll be delighted so, to hear that. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure like he's been waiting for that compliment for years. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, on balance, um, I suppose I went in expecting to be more Team Joshua, but ended up a tad more Team Elena than Team Joshua in terms of the balance of um different emphases in terms of the arguments that they made and so on but maybe that's because i'm an academic overall i thought the intertwining of the kind of um of a more activist perspective for want of a better word and um elena's um background as a academic marxist i thought it worked remarkably well and i think i imagine to many of our listeners that elena's in particular elena's kind of um account of how she came to the views to put together the collection um, will resonate with their experiences in the academy in terms of its conformity and orthodoxy. Yeah, definitely. Alex? Yeah, no, I thought, I mean, I think obviously one of the most provocative things that was said in there, um, which would be interesting to discuss, is Elena's contention, which I think Joshua uh, departs from, is that the left is the ruling class. And I don't know, I, I, I just think that's wrong, basically. I, I think that's a kind of provocative social media way of presenting things that has entered critical thought and which might give you a frisson of, uh, you know, of excitement and, and of rebellion that you're saying, oh, the left actually is a ruling class, but I don't think that actually has that much substance. And the way that Joshua put it towards the end, that actually what the left does is provide means of ideological legitimation for an assault on the working class is a far more correct way to put it than just simply saying that the left is the working class. I don't think that's um, correct. We can go through, you know, certain examples is, um, you know, are, are the members of the DSA actually the ruling class? No, they are parasitic on, uh, in many cases, on the Democratic Party, which is, you know, one of the two parties of order in the United States. And it's of, it's parasitic on the left wing of capital. And it often provides the material, the ideological material through which the ruling class rules, but it doesn't rule directly. It isn't the ruling class. So I don't think that's, I don't think it's particularly useful to, to say it that way, or you'd have to certainly redefine left in such a way that would, uh, you know, kind of distort it out of all um, kind of common sense I, understanding of it. Yeah, I tend to, I kind of, I mean, I can see what you're saying, Alex, but I think perhaps you're over finessing the distinctions within these groups. 
um, you know, between the Democratic Party, the DSA and Jacobin, I think those lines are kind of fairly blurred. Um, particularly in but certain even, circles, but even if and they're, but these... even, even if they're part of the democratic, even if they're literally part of the democratic party, that doesn't mean that they are the ruling class. I mean, they might be apparatchiks within uh, the the ruling party, but that doesn't make you the ruling class either. I mean, doesn't you know, it? No, no. I think they're cadre. I mean, they're cadre of a particular ruling block, and I don't, you know, and I don't, um, I don't think, you know, kind of finessing. Finessing that too much, I think, you know, I don't think it's particularly worthwhile. It's not like, you know, they're, those people are there trying to decide what to do for the American state. You know, I don't think they're taking orders from, um, it's not like there's a cabal of Silicon Valley tech oligarchs that is the real ruling class behind the facade of overeducated kind of, um, you know, overeducated Ivy League. No, but I mean, but it is, I mean, it is, that, that, or that is a major component of the ruling class in the private sector, owners of capital, as well as um, the factions, you know, within politics and other leading institutions. No, but I mean, so the, I mean, so the, the, like the DSA is not like, you know, the kind of the DSA and its satellite and, you know, the kind of all those that, that for want of a better word, kind of um, spectrum, I suppose of the political left, um, which covers think tanks, NGOs, charitable foundations, upstart magazines, established magazines, podcasters, all of that, right? I mean, they're all on a spectrum. So my point is, it's not like they're simply dupes, or um, a kind of a, you know, a facade for something which is dis separate, you know, d meaningfully distinct or separate from but, them. But I mean, I I'm think that's, sure an, that's, that's an overly idealist way of looking at it in terms of what, they, what, what ideas do they hold and are they the same as the other people? I mean, they're I think they are. functionally and structurally in different places within the ordering of society. I think the ideas, so, the so ideas you know, I think they share the same kind of essential outlook. So they're so, part I don't, of the but same but, 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 group. But, but that at any other point, you can say also that, for example, conservative Catholic workers held the same perspective as ruling class Catholics, right, in, in, in an earlier age. That wouldn't make them part of the ruling class either. I'm not saying that the, the, the situations are totally analogous. No, I'm, just, sure. I'm, just, I'm just putting emphasis on a structural understanding, which I think is what we should be um, you know, providing and pursuing rather than an idealist one, which just looks at the fact that, so, I mean, you know, I, as I say, the, those, the, the, the left around. there, no, the left there is parasitic on the left wing of capital. What I, what but I said but wasn't, it isn't, I it isn't think, capital itself. I don't think what I said was idealist. I think, um, and I don't think the, uh, the idea that the ruling class is directly capital itself, I think is, you know, I don't think that's uh, meaningful, uh, or coherent. So I think, I mean, they are part of the ruling strata, you know, whether or not they're well paid or whether or not they're, um, you know, whether or not they draw income from, uh, you know, a foundation or whether they're actually kind of oligarchs. But I did want to say something about something slightly distinctive or slightly different from what you said, Alex, which um, cuts a bit against both, uh, both against what Joshua said which is he wanted to, as far as I could tell, he wanted to suggest that the kind of conformist rebellion that they criticize or that is criticized by the authors in the piece is continuous with postmodernism. That it's the same kind of, um, kind of anti-Marxist left radicalism. And I don't think that's right. Um, because if they were, if the kind of um, the left today were postmodernists, they wouldn't have been pro-COVID. 
or rather pro-lockdown, right? Because they would be Foucauldians. So at least postmodernists were Foucauldians. Um, and their attachment to Foucauldian concepts would have given them, I think, sufficient skepticism and distance from what turned out to be the, the biopolitical regime that we've seen in lockdown. So I don't think they're postmodernists. I, I think that's... I think can, can I just you, come in well, on that? Well, yeah. No, let me finish. Let me finish the thought. So I think it is this the new kind of left elite um, isn't the postmodern kind of left of the 1980s and perhaps the early to mid 1990s. It is a distinctively new kind of phenomenon. And it is, I think, it can be characterized more that it leans more heavily on Marxist tropes and Marxist ideas. And how far they're, you know, kind of um, meaningfully connected to a Marxist politics is a separate question. I don't think they are. But I think their ideas are far more infused with Marxist, in scare quotes, notions than they are with postmodern notions. And I think that is more, and I think that is really the challenge to deal with. I mean, I, I agree that it's not postmodernism as we understood it in terms of post-structuralist thought. Um, I think I just took that as a shorthand for what actually might be better described as culturalism, um, that the left has become culturalist and is not materialist. And I, in, in, insofar as that, I think that's correct, because a lot of what Joshua and Elena critique and what a lot of the chapters seem to do, um, not having read the book, but you know, looked at the table of contents, is attack, you know, wokeness for for lack of a better word and elena put it right at the, right at the start you know effectively that trilogy idea of um or that triumvirate of race class and gender where class and gender right excuse me where race and gender um occupy the same pride of place as class does um so i mean i'm, I'm fine with using postmodern just as shorthand even even if i take your point i think but, it's but i don't think it, it you know i think it's yeah. dangerous because it effaces distinctive eras i think you're um, just trying to finesse something which is actually the same and actually you're you're just no using words i think you're, to, I, i'm I think just throwing you're... the same critique you threw at me which i and i hear no. you really are finessing something some ideological no, no, no. distinctions which are which aren't that important, important. Just, no but it is an important words one. around you're just throwing words around we, we all that's, know it that's called talking that's called throwing words around is talking and discussion is Alex the basis earlier. of politics that is true i did um, anyway, but what and, I meant was he was accusing me of being idealist, which was just throwing a word around without being without it being meaningful. But let me develop a point like discussion bit. to me, the basis of politics, you could say. <laughs> Anyhow, can I can I, I, mean, I, I do have a can I, I develop George? No, George, why don't you, yeah. you, you steer us? Yeah, yeah. Because I think, yeah, because I think the in some ways saying that it's all all the fault of postmodernism is too easy and I mean, that's not exactly what joshua was saying but i think the real the real problem to be dealt with is that like any conformist rebellion has to include to a large extent marxists or people who see themselves as marxists or, or describe themselves as marxists so you have two options one is like whittle down the number of true marxists maybe down to like one or a very small number um <clears throat> and the other is like to Can dismiss you go less that than tradition one? Um, yeah, maybe there's fewer than one true Marxist left. Maybe it's um, not point. It's like infinitesimally small, but it's not zero. And that's and that's the uh... anyway. So, but that, but I, I guess that would be my point, right? It's like from what the two of you are saying is like, what, what's the political like import of this? Like, I, I do think it is too easy to say it's just the postmodernist fault. But like, equally, do you want to throw out the the Marxist baby? With the Marxist I, I think, I think oh, but this well, is I think... this is why it's so important, I think, for us, right? Particularly if that is the kind of the that classical kind of understanding of uh, the 
contradiction between labor and capital is where we base ourselves. And I think it is important. It's important in two respects, right? Because I think it's very difficult to understand the globalist character of what Joshua called the kind of left liberal hegemony without understanding how, to some extent, it's been kind of fed and replenished by Marxist ideas. And the second part is a sociological point, which is that the generation, this particular generation of kind of academics and intelligentsia that legitimate the existing um, kind of, uh, you know, this existing kind of ideological superstructure, they developed in opposition to postmodernism. And I think that's very important, right? Um, they are, they are, um, they, you know, they cut their teeth in historical materialism conferences that Elena was talking about. That's where they went. They didn't do kind of um, structural linguistics, Saussure and Derrida, and they clearly didn't do Foucault, as we've already mentioned, right? Or they kind of clearly didn't understand anything they took from Foucault. So I think there is kind of a stronger, um, a stronger association with Marxist ideas in the current kind of um, existing conformist left than there was before. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, can I just draw attention to one thing that Joshua said that I think was really interesting, that there's two critiques, right? That there's a more traditional critique, which is a self-critique of the workers' movement and of the left. And then there's a critique of quote-unquote postmodernism. And again, I don't want to get hung up on that discussion, but on left culturalism, on contemporary left liberalism, wokeism, whatever, right? Um, and that while the former is very important, it's the latter which they have uh, tasked themselves with critiquing in this edited collection. And I think that's that's worth thinking a little bit about because also what the what kind of Marxism relations, Marxism's traditional relationship to the left is precisely that self-critique and that critique of the workers' movement for its limitations. That's very important. What we're doing here, and I say we because we, we also do this on the podcast and, and obviously the book does it in critiquing, for example, well, capitalism or all these left liberal ideas is something maybe else because there isn't, it's not, these aren't work, these aren't bad ideas that are tainting the workers movement, right? Um, there are ideas out floating out there in general. Um, which is, so it's, I think that the, the object of critique is different, who the bearer of those bad ideas is different, right? So it's, a, it's firstly, an obviously more intellectual exercise, because you're talking about disabusing or critiquing anyway, the bad ideas of so called Marxists who actually just, you know, provide the ideas, the, the, the raw material for woke capital, right? So the people at historical materialism conferences. Um, and I think that's important. I don't think that's, I think that's an important task, but I think there's an element of like, of how we conceive of strategy for lack of a better word there, right? So it's, if you're, you know, the, Josh obviously was quite grand with um, with his aims, right? He's like, oh, we, you know, abolish class relations. George made a joke about it. Um, but obviously that isn't our-, our George made a joke? Yeah, well, yeah, surprisingly. Oh, wow, but, okay. You know, that, that, that the end goal- I must the, have missed that. I'm sorry, yeah, George, yeah. I missed that joke. Uh, that the end goal oh, is abolishing sometimes. class relations. Anyway, guys, uh, the end goal is abolishing class relations, but obviously there's something that needs to happen well before that, right? And part of that task is the sort of ground clearing, you know, clearing away these culturalist ideas. Um, and I think that's quite important. And that's what this book sets out to do. So I thought there was a good, a good amount of clarity there in, in setting out what two different- kind of planks of a Marxist critique are. 
Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the themes that I did I did want to uh, see what you guys thought about was you know specific uh, what is a specifically Marxist critique of the left and what other critiques are there out there at the moment and how's that you know how how can that Marxist critique be differentiated you know what what makes it potentially more useful or more or more interesting or more you know more politically kind of generative. Well, you wrote, I mean, you wrote a piece for it, George, so I mean, maybe you should answer because I have to say I kind of struggled with, you know, identifying what it might be. Marxists were not the only ones to um, identify the fact that there was something tremendously self-serving for the middle classes in retreating into um, Zoom during the era of lockdown, for instance. So I agree with what Joshua and Elena said, that lockdown is kind of significant insofar as it was so directly kind hostile to um, working class interests and so clearly designed around middle class interests in terms of the implementation of the policy and how it played out um, but you know you don't I don't think you had to be a Marxist to see that perhaps it helps but then again there were plenty of Marxists who were screaming and shrieking about how anyone who didn't support lockdown was um, you know kind of a, a corporate shill who wanted to kill people in favor of um, capital accumulation or some nonsense like that yeah I mean <clears throat> so my chapter is about brexit and you know not to talk about brexit yet again but um yeah, I think this it was inter- it was kind of interesting, right? Because this was the first time that I really sort of read or, or, or found myself all like gravitating way more towards certain non-Marxist sort of critiques, which were basically what's the crude like the, as, the vulgar as vulgar as possible. Like, what is the class analysis here? Like, who is who is doing what to whom for whose benefit? You know, is one way to put it. But basically, like what you know what are the material interests you know who who is who is doing this who is acting as a, as a group and you don't have to be a marxist to do that you know maybe it helps um in certain sorts of analysis but maybe it it, it doesn't help maybe it actually obscures <laughs> this is a weird thing to say but maybe actually being a marxist uh in today's economic climate in today's like climate or whatever actually makes it more difficult to just look at the uh, the class and you know the class actors and, and what they're doing so yeah, I guess my the way the reason why I wanted to ask that question though to bring it back to that to that question is because I think there is you know Marxists or this this collection are not the only people who think that the left, um, particularly perhaps the American left at the moment is not is not brilliant. So I just wondered if there was anything that came out of the interview that was like here here are some points which which or, or emphases which you don't see in other kind of maybe conservative critiques of wokeness, for example? Plenty. I mean, I think they were, you know, it was striking. I thought it was a, again, I mean, you know, like I said at the beginning, I thought it was a really good and interesting interview. Um, And I thought they clearly complement each other well as editors and both as editors and as interlocutors. Um, I would, like I said, I mean, there were some things I suppose I could take issue with. Um, Perhaps that's to be pursued at a different time, say with Joshua's account of the rise and fall of the left in the 20th century. But one thing that stood that stood out for me and um, which I thought was interesting was when Joshua framed the stakes in terms of human civilization. Because what strikes me about that is that that framing, which is a classical, which is certainly kind of a classical understanding of um, what are the stakes of the political supremacy of the working class, reaching back as far as the late 19th century and, you know, Rosa Luxemburg in the First World War. But it's different from, I think, most leftists and most eco-socialists would frame it in terms of um, 
humanity, right? They would give it as a kind of biopolitical, um, they would give a biopolitical account of what's at stake. So, you know, if we don't do these things, the planet will burn, millions of people will die from infections. Yeah, extinction, um, etc. Yeah, extinction rebellion, essentially, right? Rather than human civilization, which gives it, you know, obviously you need humanity for human civilization, but it's not bio, it's not a biopolitical account of what's ultimately yeah. at stake. And I think that is important. But then again, that goes back to the question of what is distinctively Marxist, because to defend human civilization puts you in the camp of, um, or in the same camp as, um, you know, people who would see themselves as conservative or as classical enlightenment thinkers, classical liberals, perhaps. And then again, and then you have to differentiate again within that camp as to what the differences are in terms of defending what you count as yeah. human civilization. But anyway, I thought it was important, right? And perhaps that is an important point is to say that what we're interested in is human civilization rather than human survival, because human survival will always push you to the emergency, the emergency regime, and ultimately screwing down working class living standards in yeah. order to pay for your, um, you know, eking out a graduate existence as a PMC kind of apparatchik. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think, but this is where the use of postmodernism might actually be useful in a broader sense of, and, and maybe reading it more literally as postmodernism, right? So what you want to return to is a certain understanding, a certain modernism, right? And which you can also read as the inheritors of the enlightenment, certainly the radical enlightenment. And that, and that's how you trace it back. So, you know, I, and I would, def, you know, define myself as a modernist, um, which is a way of saying, yes, I'm a Marxist, but also I uphold in some ways, the context and the, the the shoulders on which Marx stood, as well as Marx himself. And I think a lot of Marxists today have lost that in many ways, right? So there's there's a kind of loss of what the sense of, of what the Enlightenment context out of which Marx, well, very much post-Enlightenment context out of which Marx emerged, and that gets lost, right? So for example, defending the idea of civilization, um, many Marxists today, and ones we, we would happily say, yes, or or Marxist aren't just kind of wokesters or whatever. Um, yeah, they would say it's all white supremacy and colonialism. Right, exactly, that's bullshit, right? But but there's other proper Marxists who also wouldn't be very interested in talking about civilization either, right? Um, because they would who are you know, they, they would see it as because they I think most Marxists would see it as white supremacy and colonialism. If you say civilization, they would sneer because what they would hear would be like, you know, genocidal settler colonialism. No, okay, I think that's but what most Marxists would say. Sure, but I mean, I don't know, to take something off the top of my head, Vivek Chibber recently, he's a Marxist, he would not he would not uh, see it as white supremacy or whatever, right? Um, so anyway, I... I think that's I think that's a useful I, I would prefer the term, you know, modernist and to defend modernism as not as an artistic movement, but as a whole, almost many sort of tacit understandings even about humanity, about civilization and so on, on which Marx, Marx didn't even have to refer to it too explicitly very often because it was uh, taken for granted for him in a way that it isn't for us today. And that is the way in which we are postmodernist. Um, I, I just wanted to, to return to an a, artist. You can be an artist too if you want, Alex. You can, yeah. Um, I did want to return just the thing about the the two critiques. I thought that was maybe the the kind of potentially richest element of the interview, which is worth delving into a bit more. So these two critiques being the self critique of of the workers' movement, and the other line of critique being this critique of quote unquote postmodernism or culturalism or whatever form of degenerations there are today. Um, and I think here. It, it's very clear that when we talk about the left today, it is a left that has lost all connection with Marxism, 
with historical materialism. And hence, moral critique is all there is. And that there have always been lefts um, which have depended on moral critique. Pre-Marxist, the pre-Marxist socialists and pre-Marxist left did that. Um, many currents after Marx continued to do that, but they were so marginalized um, because Marxist organizations, even ones which were very obviously the left wing of capital and not revolutionary organizations like social Democrats still had could trace some sort of lineage and intellectual debt to Marxism. Um, and so, you know, you had maybe Methodist or whatever on the left who had only a moral critique, but they were very marginal in the history of the left. Today, all you have left, more or less, especially in the Anglosphere and across developed countries, is is a, is, a, is, a, is a left which only has moral protest to offer. Um, and so that changes the nature of the critique that we have to make of it because, you know, previous left, genuine socialists, however limited they may have been because they were reformist or blah, 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 blah. Um, you, the critique was that, look, your strategy is wrong because you and, and your, the ideas that inform your strategy are wrong because you'll never achieve the socialism that you claim. Um, now, there are no socialists because I think that anyone who that the left today has abandoned any even a tacit adherence to that goal. And that is despite the fact that in the US today, everyone talks about socialism now. I think, you know, I think we've been very clear on this podcast that the socialism that is talked about in the US is the democratic socialism is just social democracy and it has lost any sense of it being a stage beyond capitalism. Um, what about fully automated luxury communism? That, that's maybe a rare exception. Yeah. Um, but broadly, I just don't. I just don't buy the picture you're drawing, Alex, at all. The, the picture you're so? painting. I think, well, because I don't think it's. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, first of all, I don't think you know Methodism is a marginal thing in the history of the left for a start, um, for better or for worse, probably for worse. But secondly, also, I just don't see that they're not Marxist or socialist. I think it's the wrong way to frame the question of how Marxist or socialist the left is. I think it is post postmodernist, you know, in important ways, and the influence of ideas like Falk, the influence of Navarra Media, the influence of Jacobin and kind of affiliated um, organs, I think all of that points to the fact that it's mean genuinely post postmodernist. Um, at the same time, however, I think what's lacking is an organized labor movement. And that is what makes these questions of, you know, who is how far they are, um, you know, there's a limit to how far you can kind of, how many angels you can get to dance on the pin of, um, you know, debating whether or not such and such is, um, you know, gen authentically Marxist. Or no, not. okay, but, but I, I, look, I, we're obviously, we obviously agree that it's the absence of a labor movement, which is the key material component here that is absent, and that informs all the intellectual and ideological consequences of it. What I'm saying is that if we're talking about the left today and critiquing the left, which anyone who would self-identify as a Marxist should presumably do, um, that that left is one that has not only lost connection with Marxism, um, but who depends on moral critique and who's fundamentally, they do not want socialism, right? And I think I, I don't think that's squabbling over terminology. If we understand socialism, even just at a basic level as a society beyond capitalism, none of them want that. None of them are really aiming for that. 
So social democrats of but that mid, was true. But social, the democrats, social democrats no, in the past as no, well. I, I yes, don't think it so. Was. I don't think so. There was a tacit, there was a, even at the very least a tacit assumption that there would be some move amongst Labour Party, right? That there would be some movement towards beyond capitalism at some far point in the future. No, when, Whereas when now that has Clement Attlee, when Clement Attlee was elected and started nationalizing industries and building and nationalizing the hospital trust that would become the you know the pillars of the NHS, he was saying this is socialism. And I'm sure there are millions and millions, there were clearly millions of people who voted for him, and millions and millions of people who are probably ideologically committed doctrinaire socialists, who said that this is socialism, this is what we want, this is what we voted for, this is what we're building. So I don't think, you know, that it was, I think they understood, there were differences of as to what socialism meant in the past. And I think, you know, there are people who call themselves socialists today. What they mean is yeah, the largest, I mean, you know, more state spending. Of course. And, more and, welfare, and there were, and there were fascists who just, who defined themselves as socialists as well. I mean, yeah, I suppose, right? Indeed. Uh, and right? and so, various forms of national developmentalists and so on. So I don't, I don't really see, you know, I don't, the idea that, um, People who call themselves socialists today are not authentically socialist because their ideas are somehow um, so vastly different from those of the past. I'm not sure that I wouldn't frame it in those terms. I think the difference is there is no, like, I mean, as we've said, right, there's no organized labor movement whose demands impose themselves on society and demand a social political response from everybody else, yeah. including from their own representatives. Yeah, I mean, maybe to a certain extent, it was always, it was ever thus, like go, going back and reading Communist Manifesto and like the all the different sorts of uh, quote unquote socialists that, that critique there, like some of that, some of that language, some of that thinking still applies like wholesale um, today. But yeah, yeah, that's the, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of makes you think, you know, is, is Marxism even possible? Like if you have, if you don't have, Hashtag makes you, have, you think. Well, <laughs> yeah. just like if it if it's the if it's a theory of praxis and there's you know you know where's the praxis then the theory is going to become like a an ingrowing toenail referring like only to it to itself. Yeah. And, well, I mean, and and that's why many many very serious Marxists abandoned Marxism and drifted away from it for precisely that reason because they felt that it had no basis anymore that you couldn't have this whole intellectual edifice that was built up made no longer made sense and that's a serious question i i you know i one one to which i don't yeah. have an answer other than the fact that i would rather do a kind of pascal's wager and continue to be a marxist um in the hope that you know that something turns up rather than uh you know bin it all well i'm not sure that the pascal's wager works in this in this case because all the people who are doing the pascal's wager will be first against the wall because that's just you know, it's a terrible way to, to align yourself to <clears throat> to the to the coming workers' movement. But I, I don't know if, if there's any any final thoughts. I think it's been it's been and it's obviously we're not going to solve these these problems, and some of them are quite foundational to the approach of the the whole collection. I think some of them, you know, kind of go go beyond some of the the chapters in in that collection. I think it is it is worth, and I would say this. I think it's worth listeners picking up a up a copy of this. I would say available in all good bookstores, but available online you know listeners now know how to buy a book um but yeah i mean th this is the i think it is it is a, it is a big question that we you know we started with is the left the ruling class or not like if it is or if it's an important part of you know if it's a managing class or whatever its relationship to power is it's clearly something which needs to be understood and critiqued politically so yeah very happy uh, again to, to speak to elena and joshua and um yeah happy to contribute a chapter so yeah thanks thanks for discussing it with me i feel i feel it's a difficult one for me to 
to chair because I'm obviously on the side of the collection and the and the, the editors. <laughs> we're not we're not um, we're not against really the collection. Neutral. Just just to make that clear. <laughs> um, no, but I think this was all very interesting. Uh, obviously, loads of issues raised here, um, and I bet you patrons will have uh, lots of takes and arguments and criticisms of what we've said and i look forward to reading them and uh, we all look forward to discussing them when we record the next alpha bonus bonus which should be uh, relatively soon okay that's it for now catch you later guys bye bye but i think it is worth listeners picking up a, up a copy <laughs> No, no, you're gonna have to retake that. I was gonna say, I'm better for those. I'm sorry, it just you're you, you completely fell. Hey, bless you. <laughs>